Well, the sermon text for this morning is from Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 32. That's on page 1126 in the Pew Bible. Eleven twenty-six. We'll be looking specifically today at verses uh, twenty-six and twenty-seven, but that's part of a larger section here that uh, that we'll we'll read as well to give us a flavor for the context here. So uh, let's uh, read this portion of God's word. We'll start at verse twenty-four and then read on through the end of the chapter at verse thirty-two. Either just listen or read along to this portion of God's word. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, Unmerciful, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Well, this, uh, this passage, and especially these two verses, 26 and 27, that we'll be looking at together this morning, uh, deal with... Uh, with the, the topic of human depravity and sin, and specifically our verses deal with the issues of, of homosexuality. And that's obviously a very controversial topic in today's world and culture. And uh, we, are, we are not unaware that many people take offense at the biblical statements in it, on it, rather, and uh, not only reject what the Scriptures say, but accuse Christians of being unloving or hateful because we embrace them. And uh, truth be told, uh, sometimes Christians have not loved our neighbors well in regard to this issue. But we must not compromise what God's Word says in Scripture. We must be clear on this issue, and we must not approach it out of hate, but out of love for our neighbor and concern for their souls, and most of all, out of awe and respect for God 
and for what he tells us is true in his word. It is loving to warn people of danger and to point all people to their need of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul does in this entire chapter and specifically as well in verses 26-27. Well, as we walk our way through these two verses and then look at some applications and clarifications, uh, we begin first with with, uh, the issue of sinful passions and desires in verse 26. Now last time we we completed our look at verses 18-25, through and there we saw Paul begin to explain why we need God's gift of righteousness that's found in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. And that reason is because we are not righteous. None of us can stand in judgment before the holy God and claim righteousness because we are sinful and guilty. In chapter 1, Paul is focusing on how this is true, certainly of all individuals, but especially on the non-Jewish persons of the world. And he tells, uh, tells the bad news that we are indeed all guilty. We need the gift of righteousness, which is found only in Christ, for we are wicked. In verses 18 through 25, Paul explained mankind's universal and sinful suppression of the truth of God's existence and his nature. God has made it clear by his creation that he exists and that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, good, kind, and that we're answerable to him. Yet we sin against him and against each other and willfully ignore the truth about him by pursuing sinful rebellion instead. Humankind invents ideas and religions and indulges in sin to distract us from what is true and obvious about God. We also saw that as mankind turns from the true God to invented idols and false gods, that God gives mankind over to our lusts and our lies, and that is really a form of punishment. He lets people do what they want to do, and so sin becomes the punishment for sin this side of Judgment Day. Our sinfulness, then, is why we are under God's wrath and why we need the gospel and why we need Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, We'll begin our look at verses 26 through 32, where Paul gives examples of the wickedness that comes from a rejection of the true God, the worship of of false idols, and our being given over to our sinful desires. Verses 26 and 27 focus on sexual immorality, specifically what our culture refers to as lesbianism and homosexuality. Paul cites both the desires and the sexual acts themselves as violating God's created order and therefore being sin and rebellion. They are example, examples rather of, of mankind's rejection of God and our sinful rejection of him as we indulge in, in sinful thoughts and behavior. So they stand as examples, but they stand as examples along with what will be mentioned Lord willing, next week in the remainder of 28 through 32, which explains why we are all under God's wrath and need a Savior. Before we begin, I'll, I'll repeat again that this is not a hateful attack on LGBT individuals. 
but an including of such folk along with all the rest of us as sinners before the holy God so that we might acknowledge our sinfulness instead of ignoring or endorsing them and turn to the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus Christ and the new life that is given in him. And so we begin with Paul's words in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And here Paul again uses the phrase, God gave them over. You'll recall that he used that back in verse 24 to express how in the punishment of mankind's abandoning of worship and service of him, God lets cultures and individuals do what they want to do as they indulge in sinful rebellion. And that becomes a punishment for sin by their indulging of sin. And here Paul says that God gives them over to degrading passions. So what Paul is about to describe then in the rest of 26 and 27 are examples of desires or lusts that are degrading or dishonoring. In other words, the desires themselves are sinful and wrong. And they bring dishonor on those who have them. Now, while the focus in in these verses is on same-sex desires, Scripture teaches that sinful lusts or desires are certainly not limited to same-sex desires. For instance, Jesus tells tells us in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The sinful act of of violating the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is tied to the sinful sexual desire of the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And so you can violate the sense of the, the seventh commandment with lust in your heart. As a A writer, Christopher Ewan, comments, In other words, it's wrong to say that only the act of illicit sex is sin. Its desire is sinful as well. So all kinds of sexual desires are sinful. Since the scripture limits a godly sexual desire and expression to one man and one woman in the context of the covenant of marriage. Yet in mankind's rebellion, there is a giving over to sinful desires that degrade and dishonor oneself. And there is something special about sexual sin that is particularly dishonoring, not to mention uh, in the soul, but also in the body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 and 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And so in verse 26, Paul gives his first example. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Notice that Paul begins with the same sex sexual sins of women first. And this is likely because it is the most vivid example. The same sex desire and sexual activity between women here is called an exchange between uh, of the natural function rather and is therefore unnatural. A God, our creator has made us as sexual beings 
And he has made us as male and female to complement one another in sexual expression within the context of marriage. Same-sex sexual desire and activity is sinful as it, as it violates God's created order and pattern, and so it is deemed unnatural. And not to be, not to be crass, but men and women are quite obviously made physically to fit together sexually and are made for one another. Same-sex sexual behavior violates that natural order that has been established by the Creator. It is also noted by several authors that uh, in lesbian relationships, often uh, the romantic relationship part of it dominates. Christopher uh, Ewan, who writes extensively on these topics, uh, helps us here. Now, these passions include and can include romantic relationships that are rooted in same-sex desire. But since there is no biblical or holy end or goal for such a relationship, the romantic feelings as well themselves are sinful. We might add that, of course, sinful romantic feelings are forbidden for all people outside of of that context of of, uh, biblical marriage. Not just, uh, not just with those in, with the same-sex attraction. Uh, Christopher Ewan again gives the example of a married man who, who has a romantic relationship with a woman who is not his wife. Even if they are not yet having sex, their romance is sinful. Uh, Ewan writes, if the end is wrong, action, and the lust is wrong, desire, then everything in between is wrong, as well, including romance. Now, this is true of married persons who look outside their marital relationship, and it is true of same-sex desires and romantic feelings as there is no godly outlet or end for them. Faithfulness in biblically defined marriage and chastity and singleness with godly desires and actions is what God approves, and anything else falls short. Second, sinful desires and acts among men in verse 27. Now here Paul continues by giving an example of the sin of of male same-sex desire and activity. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts. Notice that here, again, there is an abandoning of the natural function given by God the Creator of a man and a woman in their sexuality, and instead a desire of men for other men and the indecent acts that follow. Again, both the desire and the sexual acts themselves are wrong and sinful. Paul is not here, by the way, stating something new. This is the consistent teaching of God's word over the years and in both Testaments. For example, in Genesis 19, God judges the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed them for their wickedness. And while certainly they were guilty of many sins, including pride and disregard of the needs of the poor and idleness, according to Ezekiel 16, the homosexuality common in the cities is the primary reason 
cited in Scripture for their destruction. You may recall that when two angels visited Lot, the men of Sodom saw them and showed their sinful desires in this way. In Genesis 19, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. Now the angels, after protecting Lot and his family, tell them to leave and to flee to safety, and then the cities are destroyed. The sexual sins of the men of Sodom are highlighted as the primary reason for God's judgment. And that's, uh, that's done explicitly in the book of Jude, verses 5 and 7. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude there refers to gross immorality and going after strange flesh, referring to the same sex practices and desires of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area, which was condemned and judged. As Simon Kistemacher writes, when the men of Sodom were interested in sexual relations with men, they perverted the created order of natural intercourse. And so God brought judgment. In Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20, same-sex sexual acts are clearly prohibited as sinful and are called an abomination, a word that means detestable or loathsome. Leviticus 18:22, you shall not lie with a man with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 and 13 says, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now both of those verses are found in chapters which list all kinds of sexual sins, including adultery and incest and other really repugnant things. Now, some commentators want to limit the Scripture's condemnation of same-sex sexual acts to their use in violent or abusive situations or only when done as part of pagan religious practices such as temple prostitution. But the Scriptures, when looked at, do not validate that view. The Scriptures do not limit the prohibition to those specific situations. Rather, they are very broad. In fact, Leviticus chapters 18 and 20 specifically tell Israel not to do what is sinful. And then they list all kinds of sexual practices which are condemned, including the ones we previously mentioned, so that they will not be like the world that that, that is around them, the the Canaanites and the Egyptians and others. And Leviticus 18 and 4 says, You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord 
your God. The sins listed in those chapters again list sexual sins of all sorts so that we would know what God forbids. And yet our passage in Romans 1 and 27 reminds us that even apart from those reading God's word, there is something unnatural and obviously wrong about same-sex desires and sexual acts. They go against God's created natural order. Paul concludes verse 27 by saying that those who have such desires and commit such acts are receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And God's giving people over to what they want to do in their sinful desires. The practice of the sin itself is a form of penalty or judgment for the sin. As Douglas Moo writes, the sexual perversion itself is the punishment. But we must also add that Scripture speaks of a forward-looking aspect of this due penalty of the practice of this error. Error meaning a word meaning straying or, or wandering from the right way. There is an ultimate penalty in all of this and other sins which go repented, unrepented of, and unredeemed. Again, Douglas Moo writes, God could not allow his created order to be so violated without there being a just punishment. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists those who practice homosexuality among a number of other specific examples of those who are outside of salvation, along with those, uh, those, all those unredeemed. He writes, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now certainly we all sin. But those who are unrepentant and live lives that are dominated by these sins, these examples of various sorts, show themselves still to be rebellious against God and engaged in in sinful attitudes and practices and so reveal themselves to be outside of salvation. Again, same-sex sin is just one example among many, both in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. But it is used here by Paul in Romans 1 as a vivid example of the an obvious outworking of mankind's sinfulness in, huma- in humanity and in cultures as it goes against God's created natural order and places us under his wrath. None of what we have seen here and walked through in verses 26 and 27 are to be viewed as hatred toward gays or lesbians or those in the LGBT community. In verses 28 through 32, and we'll get to the rest of it next week, Lord willing, Paul will expand his list to include various sins. And uh, we will be able to see ourselves in that list, even if same-sex desires and sexual acts are not things you do sinfully, Certainly the rest of the list will include things you and I do. And the point is that Paul is painting with a broad brush here to remind us that we are all in wickedness and sin and that we are all under God's wrath, which is rightfully due to us because of our rebellion. And if we are to be redeemed, if we are to 
If we are to be justified in the day of judgment, it will not come by our own acts of righteousness because we fail. It will have to, be, have to come by the righteousness supplied by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what these verses do is show that our culture's recent acceptance and endorsement and promotion of gay and lesbian desires and practice as natural and good and praiseworthy and acceptable is opposed to what God says in his word. Paul does not write as an ignorant product of his culture, but he writes as an apostle. He writes as a man empowered by God the Holy Spirit to write the very word of God. And so we dare not dismiss this as a man's opinion, but as the very word of God. Romans 1 and certainly the rest of the letter and all of Scripture is God inerrant, God's inerrant and infallible and authoritative and lasting word. It has not expired because the, the thoughts put forward and the truth put forward becomes unpopular in a culture. We are not the determiners of what is holy or unholy, what is right or wrong. God establishes these, and it reflects his perfectly holy, righteous and good attributes. And so we must submit ourselves to his law and acknowledge our sinfulness, whatever those sins might be, and know that we need Christ. As Paul will go on to say in Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, third, a points of clarity and concern now, because this subject is so important and impactful, we need to address uh, and clarify and apply uh, it uh, to, to the same-sex issues of our day and, and some uh, uh, protests that, that are lodged against this passage and others. We must approach this topic and those uh, who are directly impacted by it with compassion and love for our neighbor. Uh, the teachings of Scripture must be obeyed and accepted without compromise, but we must not be harsh when seeking to see the word embraced by others. And so uh, I've lettered these subpoints as we walk through this. And, uh, and so the first one we'll do is A, a biology. Now it's very common to hear the claim from gay and lesbian folk that they were born that way and that their sexuality is part of their biology. And so, if, so it is therefore to be accepted. It's who they are. It's how they were made. In Synod's, our R.P. Synod's 2011 paper, uh, the comparison is given, as uh, some LGBT folk put it, that uh, it is like being born left-handed, they would claim. It's not a moral decision. It's who they are, and they should not seek to change who they are. That's how they were made. Now, in response to this assertion, uh, the, uh, the Synod's paper says, the gospel, in the, in the paper called The Gospel and Sexual Orientation, it helpfully notes that science has not confirmed a biological basis for homosexuality or same-sex attraction. But even if science does eventually discover a biological basis, this does not change the clear teaching of Scripture on the issue or alter our theology or ethics. We read in chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession, our first parents sinned 
By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. And so Synod's uh, paper comments on that. Sexual identity is included in the all parts and faculties of soul and body which have been distorted by original sin or disordered by original sin. If science shows that sexual disorders are enmeshed in human biology, it does not change the fact that such inclinations are contrary to human nature as God designed it. Now, due to the fall, we are all broken in all sorts of ways, spiritually and psychologically and physically and so on. And just because we may be born with a particular disorder or a weakness does not mean uh, that God lifts his moral law and requirements according to that weakness or that damage done by original sin. For example, Synod gives this example of an adult child of an alcoholic who may have a biological predisposition to drink excessively. But that does not mean that God's law and, and his commandments against drunkenness are lifted for that person. Rather, it points to an area of temptation and weakness that needs attention God's grace of forgiveness for those sins. And in the gospel, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit to keep that person from indulging in that sin as a believer. Our friend Rosaria Butterfield, uh, as you probably well know, has written extensively on this about her own life and, and the issue in general. Rosaria writes that she has never met a gay or lesbian person who chose to be so. And so we are to address the, these issues with compassion. In answer to the question, uh, how were you converted out of homosexuality, uh, Rosaria writes, I wasn't. I was converted out of unbelief. The conversion that is relevant in the Bible is from a heart that was at enmity with God to a heart at peace with God. The Christian answer to the issue of homosexuality is not a heterosexual relationship, but holiness. And then Rosaria quotes Thomas Boston, regeneration makes a new head for knowledge, a new heart, and new affections for holiness. So that is what God does in all of us once he saves us. The point is that we all need, that we all sin, and we all need the gospel. And once we are in Christ, there is sanctification worked by God for us to grow in godliness in every aspect of life, including godly sexuality. A B, identity. In recent years, a being gay or lesbian has changed from describing what people are attracted to or desire to now being thought of as what or who a person is. One's sexual desire is now thought of as one's identity, one's personhood. But that is 
not a true thought, biblically speaking. Our identity is found in our being made in God's image as male and female. Genesis 1 and 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, to be created in God's image means that we have qualities as human beings that reflect God's attributes. Now, since the fall of mankind into sin, that image certainly is, is broken and distorted in many ways. But it is still the basic identity of who we are. Christopher Ewan writes, When we make anything else but the image of God, the core of our being, especially our sexuality, it is not a distortion of the image of, not only a distortion of the image of God, but an affront to our Creator. Our identity is found in God, not in our sexuality, no matter what it is. To elevate one's sexuality to the level of identity as a person is a distortion of what one person is and a displacing of God from his true place as our identity being found in him creating us in his image. We'll see change and grace. Uh, there certainly is hope in all of this. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul is telling us the bad news of our sinfulness and God's wrath upon us so that we might see our need of the good news of the gospel and our need of Jesus, our Savior, as Savior. Scripture points to the wonderful work of God's grace to save those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ's perfect life and atoning death and uh, resurrection to reconcile us to the holy God. Romans tells us that each and every one of us is a sinner who is guilty before the holy God, deserving of judgment. And yet, God the Son uh, became also fully man to be the saving substitute of all who would trust in him. Jesus fully obeyed all of God's law, which we fail to do. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God due to his people for all of their sins upon himself. After three days in the grave, he was raised by God the Father from the dead and accepted sacrifice and a living Savior. And all those who trust in him are covered in his righteousness, are forgiven by his sacrifice, are, are justified before God and given eternal life in fellowship with him. As Paul will write in Romans 3, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. By God's grace alone, God saves believers from all kinds of sins and backgrounds and sinful tendencies. And so we rejoice in his mercy and in his grace as he brings us to salvation in Christ and makes us new. Let me read the fuller section from 1 Corinthians 6 that was read earlier. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, 
nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 reminds us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things, the old things passed away. New things have come. As I've noted earlier, Romans 1, 28 through 32 will give more examples of various sins which place us under God's wrath. Yet by God's grace, they are all forgiven by God to those who trust in him in his person and work. And so there is a wonderful blessing here of God's salvation and of his change that he removes us from these sinful categories that we might fall into with life-dominating sins or any other kinds of sins. He forgives us, he changes us, and he continues to work change in us by the Holy Spirit once we come to faith. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 tells believers, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we are to, to, uh, to see the Holy Spirit changing us and to, to make efforts to put off sin and put on righteousness as he bears fruit in us. And so we are to be pursuing godliness in our new identity in Christ. We are reminded of that true identity all through Scripture. That the believer, as believers, we do not find our identity in our sins or in ourselves or or in any other thing, but in our union with Christ. That is how we are defined and find our, our, our true selves. Paul writes in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, finally, D, same-sex attraction. There are those in the church uh, who argue that while same-sex sexual acts are sinful, same-sex attraction is not necessarily sinful. But such a view is unsound, and it clearly denies the statements that, that Paul makes here in our verses 26 and 27. Again, let me quote to Christopher Ewan. The moral value of any desire is determined by whether its end, goal, or purpose transgresses or conforms to God's standard. Every desire has an envisioned purpose or action. If the end is sinful, then the desire is sinful as well. And so, same-sex desires are in and of themselves sinful because there is no godly outlet or end for them. The denial of this truth is dangerous and wrong as it holds that same-sex desire is somehow possible to be non-sinful. But Scripture says the opposite. 
Rather, Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction are called to godly desires and actions, just as all believers are called to do in all aspects of life. It is not denying who they are, but faithfully following Jesus Christ. Again, our identity is found in Christ, not in our sexual desires of any sort. When a single straight Christian refrains from inappropriate sexual desires, uh, refuses pornography, and keeps from fornication, they are not denying themselves part of their identity, right? They're simply pursuing godliness and finding identity in Christ and seeking to obey him. And the same is true of a same-sex attracted Christian. We are not defined by our sexuality or whatever sinful desires we struggle with. We're defined by our union with Christ. And in following him, we find our truest self. There are certainly believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, and they look to the Lord to sanctify them in every area of life, including that particular area of weakness. And the Lord does work change in us and, and, and keeps us from sin. And certainly all of us have areas of weakness and struggle with sin that we need to grow in. It might be anger or lying or lust or materialism or whatever. So we must not treat fellow Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction as inherently different, although they may, uh, their struggles may present unique issues and we may not be fully understanding of them. Rather, we need to be helpful and loving as we seek to help one another grow in the image of Christ. And we do so with great hope in God's ability to grow us in godliness by his power as we look to Christ and as we keep watch over our sinful desires and are prayerful and look to our relationship with Jesus Christ each and every day. As we help one another to grow as fellow disciples of Christ, we must not shrink back from being honest and helpful regarding any of our struggles with sin and temptation. And although our culture endorses same-sex marriage and desire and practice, we must, not, we must not abandon what is clearly said in God's word. We must rather lovingly share all people's needs to be redeemed of their sins and find Jesus, find that in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. We do thank you for the, the clarity that you give us in, in these two verses and in the larger section of our sinfulness and rebellion as humankind. And we know that that, that is true of all of us as individuals in our various sins. We pray uh, that uh, you might convict us of our sins and, and uh, drive us to see, seek forgiveness that is found only in Christ. And we thank you for your grace of forgiveness in him. And we pray uh, for, for those who, who, uh, who are outside of Christ, uh, who, who practice uh, the sins we've talked about today. Uh, we pray that you might be at work in them to convict them of their sin and and cause them to see their need of Christ. 
as we pray for, for all who are still yet in their sins, that they might, that they might turn to you and seek forgiveness in Christ. And we pray uh, for same-sex attracted fellow believers. We pray that you would be uh, blessing them and that we would be uh, coming alongside them and that uh, they would be a help to us in our struggle with sin as uh, we help them in their struggles uh, to walk alongside them and to encourage them as they seek to, to put off sin and put on righteousness as we do the same. Uh, may we be great blessings uh, to all fellow believers. And uh, we pray that you would be uh, redeeming us and uh, not only redeeming us, but sanctifying us as we walk this life together. And we ask all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now we let's turn.